Thank you, Jerry. In Advent, the season of waiting for the coming of Christ, when we slow down intentionally and we look forward to Christ's first coming and remembering that He is indeed, as Pastor John preached last week for us, that He is the one that we ought to fix our hope on. He is true hope. The eternal Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, would come and take on flesh and dwell among us. That He would live a sinless life and lay His life down upon the cross, living righteously. He's purchased for us salvation to all who believe. He's defeated death and arose again from the grave, ministered, ascending to heaven where He sits and reigns from heaven, but He will indeed come again one day soon. He will make all things right. He will rule from upon the earth. He's faithful. He is true hope. And He offers all to Him true peace. Not manufactured peace, but true peace with God. Forgiveness of sins. Peace found in Christ. Joy that's ours in Christ. Love that's ours to demonstrate in Christ that we've received by faith. This is the joy that we have in this season. As we come to our text now, it's been well established in 1 Peter that the believers are experiencing difficulties because they're believers. Their marriages have, many of them, gotten more difficult because they've come to Christ. One spouse hasn't come to Christ, one has. One spouse then is built upon the the rock of hearing and doing the word of Jesus, and the other is built upon the sands of the earth, and it's creating extra friction. So too it is with servant-master relationships and and government and, and citizen relationships. It's making their lives more difficult. And specifically, they're experiencing a wave of social pressure relational pressure from family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers because of their following after Jesus. This is something that's not new. This is something that has persisted through the centuries and exists today. That even though we would look and it it appears to most degree that, that the suffering that the believers are experiencing at this point is not physical. The government is not lashing down. That will happen in a couple decades, we know, in present day Turkey in this situation at the end of the three. There will be a physical suffering for their allegiance to Christ. But at this point, it's a spirit of the age, a spirit of the Antichrist that's taking place. Just as Scripture tells us in the first century, existed then in the, or in the earth, in the world, and does now, of course, still exist. An active hardening against Christ-likeness and a desire to mock and silence it with pressure. So as believers, as we come to this Advent season of remembering our hope and our peace and our joy and our love is found in Christ, we should not do so naively, realizing that our faith costs us and that many of those sitting around you have family members and friends that have treated them differently because of their allegiance to Christ, whether that's silent treatment or mocking or different statements because of the allegiance that you have to Jesus because you truly believe, not just in a, in a head sense that says that's a cute story. And it says that He is God and the Master of my life and that to please Him is true peace, that to rest in what He accomplished is true Love and true joy and my hope for all of life. The truth brings us into seasons of conflict. And the believers in this morning, we hold fast to these six verses as we're reminded of peace 
Peace that is yours, believer. The body of Christ has peace even in hardship when it takes on the mind of Christ. The body of Christ, you have peace with God. For all who repent and place their faith and trust in Christ, you have peace with God. But as a believer who has been adopted and you rest secured in Christ, we choose to go about our daily life to experience slander or mocking because of our allegiance to Christ. If we don't rely upon Christ and take on the mind of Christ, we will not have functional daily peace. But when we do abide in Christ, when we do arm ourselves by taking on the mind of Christ, believer, we have peace beyond human understanding. There's believers all over this world that have peace that are gathering in secret today. And there's believers that are gathering in America where we have incredible freedoms to gather with very few, so many of us with any fear of persecution at all. And all of life seems to be falling in line. We're healthy and we're rather wealthy. And yet that believer that's not armed their mind with that of Christ is living as though they have no peace. So how do we explain this understanding that the body of Christ has peace even in hardship? It's a peace that's beyond our circumstances when, it, when we take on the mind of Christ. Let's look at the first four verses as we note together that we have peace. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit, we talked about that in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is shown most sweet when paired with suffering that's brought about by bitter unbelievers. This contrast that takes place as, as we abide in Christ and our lives are changing, looking more and more like Christ. Look what he says there in verse 2. So to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. You see, every believer's story is a little different. Just as if we could bring a guest speaker in from the church of what is present-day Turkey uh, in this region that's receiving this letter from Peter, the original audience. If we could bring them in as a guest speaker and ask them to tell us their testimony, when we had a translator, it would sound a little different, but it would be very much the same. There was a point in their life where they came to understand the gospel. They repented and placed their faith and trust in Christ and began abiding in Him. And so for the rest of the time, they lived no longer for the human passions of this world. And our testimony is the same. Millions upon millions upon millions of believers throughout the centuries, through all over the face of the earth, have the same plot line and the same plot twist. And every believer uniquely, from their family dynamics to their society that they live in, to the jobs that they have, they each have unique, different social pressures that unbelievers in the larger unbelieving culture and the larger unbelieving government place upon them because of their peculiarity because of their uniqueness in Christ. Because he says, he says, they no longer do the things they used to do. And therefore, their lifestyle, the believer's lifestyle, they're longing for holiness. They're longingness to take on the mind of Christ. It's, he says in verse 4, it's what? It's pleasing to the unbeliever? No, it's shocking to the unbeliever. It's shocking. It doesn't make sense. Do any of you like Hallmark movies at all? Have got any Hallmark movie fans in here? We've got a couple. Oh, come on. That's not appropriate. Right? It's in a lot of Hallmark movies. It's this beautiful line in which there's a couple that's, uh, you know, they, they were friends or something growing up, kind of dated a little bit. They go off, and then they come back together, and there's usually some 
some faux drama that takes place, and, and, and it's usually emphasized by a line like this, things haven't changed, you've changed, right? The things haven't changed, it's you've changed. That is the unbelieving's remark to the believer. Because the unbeliever, the unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving family member, the unbelieving coworker, the unbelieving friend, the unbelieving neighbor has had a front row seat. They know they haven't left and gone somewhere else. But they look at their lives, they have a front row to their lives in the sin they used to partake in together, which was that laundry list. This is just one of the many lists in Scripture that gives us laundry list of sins. Here he says, an allegiance to, to live for human lustful passions and pride. So the unbeliever looks at the believer and says, listen, we used to live in insanity together. We used to follow the passions of the lusts, which is simply doing what's right in our own eyes. We used to party together. We used to get drunk together in this list. We used to go to wild drinking parties, do all this wild stuff together. He says lawless idolatry, which is just a catch-all for self-lordship. If it feels good, feels good, do it. And he gives this word picture. Look at that. A flood of debauchery. The unbelieving world looks at now the believer, the one who lived just like the unbelieving pagan world before. We were, we were swimming in the, in, in the same waters, the same direction, and what he calls this flood of debauchery. It is very much the Vegas marketing mindset. The Vegas marketing mindset. Hedonism, a pursuing of pleasure. You deserve it. Do what you want. It's in your own life. You do whatever you want. And you should do it. Because when it's over, it's over. Who cares? The unbelieving world looks at the believer who no longer does those things with them. And if it wasn't done with them, their self-lordship was still done with the same self-authority. And so the believer's no longer partaking the believer's not looking down on and judging them. The believer's looking and saying, I actually have hope. I have true forgiveness. I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He's bigger than Caesar. He's even bigger than our family ancestor worship. He's bigger than all these things. True life, true forgiveness, true hope, true peace in Jesus. I don't have to live like that anymore. But I have true peace, not in pursuing these human pleasures, but in eternal pleasures. And the unbeliever looks at them and mocks. Why? Because they're shocked. Because they look at the fact that they no longer do those things and they themselves perceive that they are judged. And that's what the Scriptures here exactly tell us in verses 5 and 6, as we'll see in just a few moments. That there is a judge who will judge the living and the dead. And as the bride of Christ takes on the mind of Christ, he says, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Believers then to an unbelieving world, as they're slandered and mocked, are to take up arms, but it's not weapons. We're to take up and arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And what did Christ do when he hung up on the cross? He prayed to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's to mark the believer's life. And that is always shocking to every single person. Because it's not natural. It's not of this world to repay slander with blessing. 
I don't know how many Taken movies there have been, and that's not, a, that's not a stamp of approval to say, go and watch that with your family, a Taken movie. But Taken movies are very simple in that they're, somebody gets taken, and then they're pursued viciously and violently to get them back. That's the plot of every Taken. They're on like Taken number 27 now. I don't know how many movies there have been. But imagine that Taken 28 comes out, and you go to watch it. And he's mistreated. And then he just begins praying and returns blessing to the person that mistreats him. And then the movie ends. The shortest movie you've ever seen. Number one, you'd be like, this is not consistent with the other 27 Taken movies that I've seen. But you would also be struck because you'd say, that's not natural. And a part of what makes movies like that appealing when you see somebody take vengeance into their own hands, part of that as we watch that is cathartic and feels good. Yeah, get them. They deserve it. But the believer who has been forgiven because their guilt and shame was placed upon Jesus Christ who came in the manger, born of a virgin, Jesus who lived a sinless life, and bore our sins on His body on the tree. True hope. True peace. He is Lord of our life, is transforming us. As Andrew Davis paints this picture, as we either have peace in Christ, this process of becoming more Christ-like, more and more like Jesus. It's called sanctification. Practically growing in Christ-likeness. So we gain a knowledge of God. K-F-C-A. We, we, we gain a knowledge of God. By His Word. And we abide in His Word. And we have peace and we abide in His Word. And as we trust in His Word, we gain a greater knowledge of God through obedience to Him. To the Holy Spirit who indwells us at our conversion, we gain a greater knowledge of God by His Word and by abiding in Him and seeing other believers who abide in Him. And what's this do to us? F. It grows and develops our faith. Our faith in God grows and grows. That the God that we cannot see is greater than the people that we can see. The messages that are put into our face constantly, the pressures, the social media momentum, and the spirit of the age, that the Word of God, the God that we cannot see, is greater. And our faith is built. And as our faith grows, see, our character grows. And God begins to increasingly refine our thoughts as we take on the mind of Christ. Our emotions begin to change so that even though we long for justice and God will perfectly give judgment and justice to all sinners, we also mourn when we see people die. We begin to mourn and realize they will indeed see the perfect judge and their time of repentance and opportunity for repentance and faith is over. We've, our emotions begin to change. Our hearts and longing and our will and our priorities and our goals begin to change and our affections begin to change in life. As our character changes, then actions begin to come forth more and more in our lives as we act accordingly in Christ's likeness, abiding in Him, in the peace that we have. And this leads to a shocking response from the world when we no longer, as he says in verse 4, join them in these things. So what's it mean, believers, it says in verse 1 and verse 4, that you no longer partake in sin, that you have ceased from sin. 
He says in verse 1, the context again, have suffered in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. Now, if you're a believer and you read that, you may be bothered by that, and I may be bothered. What do you mean I've ceased from sin? Like I, I, I sinned in the car coming here. So this isn't good. What's he telling them? He's telling them, no, no, no. You, you have peace with God, believer. You have allegiance to God. And here's how you see this, is the people that you used to live in allegiance to the flesh and to the devil who roams around like a lion seeking to whom he can devour, your allegiance that you had to the passions of the flesh is now different. And your allegiance now to Jesus is so distinct that the people that you used to partake in these things with are shocked. They look at your life and now they're shaming you, as he says in verse 4. And they're shaming you as a recognition because they know who their Lord is. It's their, themselves. It's idols. They look at you and say, you are not of this world any longer. And they shame you. And the fact of the shaming here helps us to understand what's he mean that you no longer sin? It's the picture that your allegiance is now to Christ. Your allegiance is shifted. So the believers then are built up and encouraged that the reality of the slander that they're receiving comforts them. Because as we've seen so far in 1 Peter, not only is it to the glory of God that God never wastes a hurt in our life, not only are there evangelistic purposes, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 3 with the believing wife married to the unbelieving husband, she's to live winsomely that by God's grace he may be one without a word. Evangelistic purposes in suffering. But thirdly, there's sanctifying purposes in suffering. Sanctifying purposes that the believer in realizing that the unbelieving world is pitted against them, not against them personally, but against the Christ who is above them, it's a reminder that Christ is doing a work in our lives. It's perspective. It's perspective. Isn't that part of the reason we like vacations? Isn't it? Many of our college students, this will be your last Sunday with us for a couple of weeks. But you have an opportunity between semesters to step back and reassess because you get out of the routine. Your routine stops, it changes. You get to step back and look at what's going on in your life. And that's part of why we like vacations. We can step back from our routines and get a larger picture of life. And the believers here, by God's word, are able to step back from the slander they're receiving by unbelievers and they're able to realize, oh wait, praise God, this is evidence that he's growing me in Christ-likeness, when in my life, practically, I don't feel like I'm changing very much, but the unbeliever looks and says, things haven't changed, you've changed. And then they begin to mock them. See this? This is a good word. This is peace that is ours in Christ. And as we go through our life today, none of these things have really changed. There's slander that's continued on for years and years. This has always been a mark of what it is to follow Christ. And if you look at the slide behind me here, uh, there's a, a picture dated to 200 A.D. 200 A.D. And so uh, this is a tracing on the right side of what is on a plastered wall engraved in Rome. And it says, Alexamonius worships his God. And upon this cross is a donkey. You see the donkey head. And this man is being mocked, slandered, because he believes that Jesus is God. And he worships him accordingly 1,800 years ago. 
believers being mocked for the faith and for a desire to please Christ and their lifestyle is nothing new. And so from the middle schooler or high schooler who's going to wage and count this cost to follow Christ as it becomes more and more costly, so often, you know, this is one of the reasons we have our, we're having a baptism class right now in Henderson Hall. Don't get up and leave. We can talk with you anytime about baptism. But something we see so often in our counseling is that a student usually around high school age or college age, and, and when we meet with people about baptism, we have them write out their testimony clearly. Because when they're younger and they come to faith in Christ, uh, and, and, and children do come to faith in Christ, but it doesn't cost them as much to follow Christ. And by God's grace, children that grow up in the local church and hear the gospel taught, they grow up and by God's grace, they come to faith very young, many of them, not all certainly, but some come to faith very early. But as they get older and they get into high school, you know how this is, don't you? And they get into college, they begin to fall into lifestyles of the Gentiles. They begin to fall into sin and sinful behavior and things in self-lordship or they go off to college and they, they just get consumed with, with mass temptations and they get caught up in the flood of debauchery and then God gets a hold of their heart and they, they're not content in that because you can't be content in sin. A sheep can't be content laying in mud. And the Lord, that lack of peace wrestles you up and out of it. And a person will, will think at times, well, I need to get, go get baptized then because I must not have ever been a believer until right now. It may be true, but oftentimes it's the fact that now their faith is costing them. And they know to stand against the flow of the unbelieving culture, the spirit of the Antichrist. It will bring a cost. But now they're willing to count the cost. Believers have and always will count the cost. Believers today, we believe things that will bring us to count a cost. Many of you have family members that have distanced themselves from you because you're following Christ. Missionaries that we support on the other side of the world, many of them that come to Christ, they're taxed at higher rates. Many of them could be imprisoned or beaten or worse. But this is true and it's worth our life. And so let's go through a number of the beliefs that you hold as a believer in Christ that is costly in our current culture that will get you mocked. We believers that, that, that we stand upon the word of God that God's word, that this is the inerrant word of the infallible, holy God. And that the scriptures are to be our final word of authority for all things in life, deed, and practice. That we filter all messages through this, our feelings and the teachings of others. We filter them through the word of God as our final authority. That's a word that's mocked today. You think of all, numerous other convictions. We believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus alone gives us, can give peace and forgiveness and hope. All the gods of the nations are idols. Demons. That there is only one way to relationship with God, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Christ is an offensive message. One that can get you mocked. We believe it's, it's sinful to murder and what determines a human being isn't your size or your size. It's not the environment that you live in. It's not the level of dependency you have upon another person or a machine. In this way, abortion is, is murder. 
It's a taking of life of an image bearer of God that God has knit together in their mother's womb. We defend and we cry out. We call not that it would simply be rare, but that it's, that it's murder. And we support unashamedly crisis pregnancy centers and, and foster care situations and adoptive situations. And we want to champion them and pray for them and be present for them. A congregation, we want to wrap our lives around young women that find themselves in those scary positions. But the sanctity of life that Scripture speaks will put us at odds with the larger unbelieving world. We believe that marriage is created by and given to us by God. Husband and wife joined together. That this is a good gift that God has given that no human being can redefine. To redefine what God has clearly given is not marriage. It is a mirage. No matter how loud it's stated, it is not true and it is not good. That all sexual activity outside the context of husband and wife marriage is sin. From the engaged couple to the cohabitating situation to the dating situation to the casual context. Heterosexual or others, it's sin. But sex is good and created by God in the context of the sanctity of marriage. These are messages that will be mocked that pornography is is, is evil and we have to wage war against it even as it invades the context of our lives as, as, as believers. We have to rebuke it. We believe that God designed human beings as biological male and female. These two distinct complementary genders reflect the image and nature of God. The rejection of one's biological gender is a rejection of the image of God in that person. We can't reassign that. God has given that. We believe that racism is evil and needs to be rebuked and repudiated in all these ways. It shows human partiality and, a, and denial of a love of neighbor. And on all of these things, perhaps the most controversial and the thing that will bring a believer most shame is the clear teaching of Scripture that anyone, regardless of what you've done or been done to you, you can be forgiven because of Jesus Christ. Your sins can be washed away. Murder, idolater, all of us, we gather together not as sinless people by our works, but by what Christ has done upon the cross. That's why this Advent is good news, is waiting and looking forward to the promised child who would live a sinless and righteous life. True forgiveness. Not an eternity of shame for what you've done, but true forgiveness because the cross is so great. That's an offensive message and a shocking message in this world that has brought believers shame for their worship and the lifestyle of worship they live. And it will never stop until Christ comes. But it's one in which we will have peace believing regardless of the cost. This leads us to pray, God, would you make our lifestyle shocking to an unbelieving world? Meaning, would you allow us to be present enough in unbelievers' lives that they would be close enough to say, they're different. They're peculiar people. Their love of this Jesus, it's more than just a Sunday thing. It should be a Sunday thing. It's more than that even. This spills over in their life and their marriage. And I look at this married couple and they're constantly asking forgiveness from each other and they're humbling themselves. I see the way they parent. I see the way they study, the way they work. It's 
Jesus really is dictating their lives. And they have peace in it. How could you have peace not going and doing the things that I like to do and get pleasure from? Let the world be shocked at the worship and joy of Christ. Amen? Peace. Verse 5 and 6, we have peace because death itself cannot hide, nor can it hide unbelievers from the just God of life. We have peace Death itself cannot hide. This does two realities in verses 5 and 6. It brings believers peace. It brings believers peace that to know that the slandering that may happen in secret, God will cause that person to give an account. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, but they, speaking of what we just read a moment ago, they that, that malign you, they that still live according to the flesh, that's the unbeliever, He said, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All will be held accountable. All will be held accountable. And how does this happen in our lives? How does this truth mature us and mold us as we grow in Christ-likeness? Always as a part of us, because we're made in God's image, is a longing for justice. Justice according to God's righteous standard. And so as believers who've been wronged and sinned against, it gives you a comfort to know that that person, even if it was never taken to court, even if it was never exposed and evidence gone over before a judge, evil that was committed to you, that person, even if they're dead and seem to get away with in this world, that person will be raised from the dead and they will stand before Jesus Christ the Lord and they will give an account to Him in perfect justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The believer is comforted in this. But the believer who longs for people to know the King are also edified by this. They're inspired by this. Why are we inspired by this? Because we're so secure in Christ. We have such peace with God in Christ. We long for the unbeliever to have forgiveness of sins. And so we can live in a way that is shocking to them. And this will catch their eyes and their hearts. And by God's grace may bring them to salvation and eternal life. That's the reality that death cannot even hide the sinner. And to the believer who dies, death cannot hide us either. That's good news. That's great news. The fear of man and the fear of God. Judgment brings a a fear, but to the believer it brings an assurity and a peace because the judgment that was deserved to us was placed upon Christ. Now even as believers, we will be held accountable, not in a judgment, wrath way, but in a reward way. We'll be held accountable for faithful living and abiding in Christ, rewards that we'll lay down at Christ's feet for eternity. That's a beautiful thing. But the fear of God for a believer makes total sense, doesn't it? Think about it. Who, would we, who do we feel more, a, a lion or a little small baby bobcat? Now, what's the context? There's a judge that we cannot see. There's a lion outside we cannot see. Do you fear it? No, we're inside. Can't see it. But if there was a little bobcat, a little teenager bobcat in the sanctuary, would you fear it? 
probably, right? In the picture here, for the believer, though, we look at it and say, it's only logical, even if people slander me and mock me, that I'm not going to give in to the and conform to the things I used to do. I'm not going to jump in with the flow and flood of debauchery. I'm going to abide in the way of the lion who loves me and cares for me and has deployed me here to live as a citizen of the lion. But oh, the power of the little bobcats. That howl and scratch. Jesus says, do not fear those who can destroy the body. As believers now, we look and say, God, I do have peace. Help me to have peace when I'm mocked or experience relational cost or worse for you. But to unbelievers, this is a huge cost. And Jesus said again and again and again, count the cost. Count the cost. So many people come to a point of saying, I believe Jesus is God, but I, the cost is too great to follow. When I lived in Missouri, there was a, a man in our church, a deacon who loved the Lord. He since died. But he always had a heart. He just had a huge heart for people. Gift of service. Gift of service. And we lived at that time, our, our, our town was about 45 minutes southeast of Kansas City. And uh, and he would work in Kansas City uh, part-time. as a, He was retired, but he, wanted to be, he was a mechanic. He didn't want to be a mechanic. He was a mechanic. And he would drive, and he found this Indian student. We had a lot of international students. This Indian student came to our church, and, and he ended up needing, he was at a point in his studies that he needed to travel to Kansas City. And so this man would give him rides, but he couldn't give him a ride every week. He only worked two or three times a week. And when he found that that, that Sarah and myself would drive, she worked, she had a job, we we're done with college, she worked on State Line Road, which means nothing to you, but it was about an hour away as a dietitian, and then I went to school, a seminary in North Kansas City, so about 30 miles from, so he needed to go, uh, this Indian student, we'll name him P, he needed to go here, and so on the days, it just worked perfectly, the days that, that, that uh, the older brother in the Lord couldn't take him, we could take him. And so for a whole semester, we rode together back and forth, and God brought incredible conversations. And he came to church with us faithfully. We always had to pick him up because he operated on a different time scale than we did, uh, meaning he would be four or five hours late if it was all his time scale. So we always made sure to pick him up. But God brought incredible conversations just all the time. He had such a curiosity about the Lord. And he got to a point of saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is God. And I was like, this is incredible. But in his Eastern culture, in his Hindu culture that he had, it, Jesus just became another God to the many gods that he already worshipped and held in high esteem. And so as we continued to meet, even in addition to our, our normal uh, travels, our carpools, uh, we would uh, get coffee from time to time. And, and when he went through, he said, I believe Jesus is God. So as I explained to him, no, no, the call to follow Christ is a call that all the gods of the nations are idols. That Jesus alone is the one true God. That He's the eternal Son of God, sent by the Father. And that's only you can have forgiveness and hope and life by trusting in Jesus and, and abiding in Him and, and knowing Him. You can know forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so it was incredible. We left this coffee. He said, I think this is true, but I need to talk to my dad. He talked to his dad, and that was the last time I ever met with him in person. His dad threatened to cut off paying for school 
and to disown him if he would become a Christian. That's been a decade ago. It's very possible that he has since come to faith in Christ and is doing great things in the Lord. Who knows? I don't know. But I do know that when Jesus says we ought to count the cost, this is a message that wasn't just true in the first century. It's a message that's true in the 21st century. And it will be until the Christ comes. That as believers were to love and serve one another in such a way that we build each other up to love and good deeds. For this is the call that God has given us. True peace. What do you believe at this Christmas time, this Advent time? Do you believe that Jesus alone uniquely brings true hope? True peace. True joy. And true love. Or is it just something nice? Is something you, yeah, you agree with? Or is this message worth your entire life? Count the cost. Because He is who He said He is. Believers, arm ourselves with peace. Arm ourselves with peace. The peace of God that comes in resting in Christ. This is the message of Advent. This is the message of the season of waiting as we look forward to to the second coming of Christ. And so, as we come to our next steps, the first of four, I want to ask you, have you confessed your sin to God? And and if you have, rest in the sufficiency of Christ's work on your behalf. Those of us who are believers, our services, as you noted, God, man, Christ's response are arranged in a way that the gospel settles us. The gospel builds our faith up, spurs us on towards love and good deeds, reminds us as believers of our surety in Christ. To confess your sins and trust in Christ. So as believers, there's this relational component. Yeah, I confess my sin. I, I am forgiven. I'm adopted in Christ. But as unbelievers, if you've not yet confessed faith in Christ and come to Him to abide in Him, Make today the day of your salvation. Repent and believe upon Christ. And after the service, there'll be counselors up here to pray with you and encourage you and, and, uh, and, and help you take your next step. And for many others, we look secondly, is there an unbeliever who's maligned you that you can commit to pray for in this Advent season? As believers, we are called to forgive, not artificially. Bitterness is very real. Even as believers, it's seeps into our lives and our hearts. What's to steal our peace and joy? And so, so potentially a next step to you is these believers are being maligned because of their faith in Christ. But they're not to take it personal. But they're to intercede and to pray even for those. And they're to pray together. So if you have a group at Grace, if you're connected to a group, men's group, women's group, small group, cross point, refuge, any group, is there somebody you could share that with that you would be praying for that person that mistreated you? And likewise, that they would join you in praying for them. That God would give you a peace in praying for their blessing and praying their forgiveness and praying for their life. Never underestimate what God can do through prayer and the life of that one that mistreated you and a heart that may be calcified by bitterness. Never underestimate what our God can do. Third, schedule and prioritize daily time with the Lord this week. Perhaps you've been out of the routine. Life has been busy. Perhaps you've been out of the routine of just scheduling time to sit down with the Lord, take in His Word, confess sin, and thank Him for the day, and ask the Spirit to guide your steps. 
schedule time this week. Like, don't let yourself go to sleep tonight until you open up your calendar and, and plug in some times. Just spend some time with the Lord. And fourthly, corporate worship is a, is a gift from God. And what does this time do? It reminds us of our peace that we have with God. But there are believers, you may know believers, that are disconnected, they're distanced from the life of a local church. And if you do, would you pray about the opportunity to invite them to join us next week? Now next week, we'll go back for the next four weeks to one service. We'll just have one service at 1030 here together as our college students will be uh, all going home. And so uh, would you pray about an opportunity to invite someone to come and to join you in this Advent season? This message of joy that we have in Christ we'll be looking at next week. The song that Pastor Stephen has selected for us, the lyrics could not be more appropriate for this text. The peace that we have in Christ. Listen to one of them. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. The church in Turkey is reminded of this word and their hardships. He is all present and He knows and He's deployed them and He loves them. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. Those two words don't usually go together. Weakness and rejoicing. Strength and rejoicing. But weakness and rejoicing? Believer, you can sing honestly and joyfully in your weakness because Christ is your strength. He's the one that never leaves your side. Weakness and rejoicing. For in my need... His power, it is displayed. Is this true, church family? It's true. Would you stand with me as we sing to the Lord in prayer over one another in this song?